Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It's Friday, September 15th. I thought Labor Day was just yesterday, but now we're halfway through September. I'm starting to see the leaves changing. I'm looking out the window right now. Beautiful afternoon in Reno. About 80-something degrees. But I'm looking out the window here, and the sun is shining on some trees out in front, and some of them are turning a little too orange and red for my liking. Look, I'm a fall guy. My favorite holiday is Halloween. But uh, I don't know if I'm quite ready to get out of my summer vibes. But it's still warm, still beautiful. It's just getting getting dark a little bit quicker. But anyways, I'm uh, I'm a little tired today. I'm getting back into the 20-mile runs uh, today. I, I think I hate myself. I don't know why I did it, but... I ran 20 laps around um, Virginia Lake, which is like about a one-mile loop. Did 20 of those to get my 20 miles. Um, I was telling my dad about that, and he was like, couldn't you just go run a nice trail? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of want to test my test something in my mind to see if I can just do the same thing over and over again for 20 miles. And I did, and I'm done. Um, now I'm a little tired just uh sipping a hop water refresher, and uh, yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, mainly foreign policy-based. I want to briefly touch on the devastating floods in Libya, just the tragic events happening there. I also want to talk about a North Korea-Russia alliance that seems to be growing, really scary stuff. Uh, I'm kind of being sarcastic and kind of not, because it's not good for the region, it's not good for Ukraine, but also... It does show the state of things when Russia is actually willing to kind of bolster relations with North Korea as they're losing relations with Azerbaijan and Armenia at the same time. So I don't know if you could really say Russia's doing great involving diplomatic relationships and having strong allies. Then I also want to talk about the state of Russian spies. Russian spies have been kicked out of Europe, and now it seems like Latin America is just a hotbed. It is just full of Russian spies that are trying to spy on Americans and other allies of the West. And it's kind of an interesting story, so we're going to talk about that as well. But first, before we get into the heavier stuff, some lighter notes. I want to start with a few palate cleansers. First off, Matt Gates is pretty much at war with Kevin McCarthy because apparently Kevin McCarthy hasn't been enough of a B-word for him, and he hasn't kept up with their deal. So McCarthy couldn't even get the House to pass a spending bill, a military spending bill bill for Ukraine and national defense. So that makes him look bad. It looks like this impeachment is going to be a shit show. He can't even get enough votes from Republicans in the House to do it. So they went forward with the inquiry without having a vote. Not a great look for him. He said he would have the votes. He doesn't. He's looking weaker and weaker. Then at the same time, you also now have Freedom Caucus members like Matt Gates and the other nutbags basically talking about how they're still going to shut down the economy and shut down the government. I think a lot of McCarthy allies were hoping that if they did this impeachment inquiry, they could maybe delay a government shutdown. But now it looks like we're going to get pretty much a, a farcical impeachment inquiry mixed with shutting down the government and maybe tanking the economy for no reason. So kind of the worst of both worlds for Republicans And we're also getting closer and closer to an election year. And so I don't know what these people are thinking. I don't know what they're doing. To me, there's just no sense in it. But I would imagine, while this might not be amazing for Biden, because obviously there's a lot of attacks on his age now. I'm one of the people that thinks he's too old. But the Republicans just seem to want to just keep shooting themselves in the foot. They don't want to govern. They don't want to pass policy. 
And it's just farcical investigations, farcical shutdowns, and they look like a joke. I mean, if you're not in that 30% of the MAGA base, then you're probably shaking your head and thinking all these people are toxic. At least that is my take on this. And speaking of a joke and toxic, I've been really obsessed with this Lauren Boebert Boebert story where she got kicked out of a theater in Colorado. Let me see. Was it Denver? Yes, in Denver. She was seeing a musical version of Beetlejuice, and apparently she was drunk and vaping and making a scene, and she got asked to leave. And I guess there's nothing of substance here, really. It's just kind of hilarious first that she's at Beetlejuice, a musical version. And also just, it shows how much of a mess she is in public. Now, none of this is really surprising. She's She divorced her husband, I think, back in May, or at least filed for divorce with her husband back in May. And this was after, I guess they were kind of notorious with neighbors for having like domestic fights out in the front yard and just acting like total buffoons. And so, I mean, I, I'm not going to bash her too much on this, and I want to keep it fairly classy. But if you're curious, just look into some of her domestic issues in the past. And it's, it's pretty trashy. It's pretty trashy. But anyways, I'm going to play this little clip that kind of breaks down what happened at the theater. I like the narrator in this. He's kind of passive aggressive. It's great. So let's give that a listen. And then we'll get into the more serious stuff. Bobert, Bobert, Bobert. Say it three times and she appears in security video from a weekend performance of Beetlejuice where the congresswoman was kicked out of the theater for being disruptive. The DCPA says she was vaping. Bobert's team denied that, said the haze was from fog machines in the show. That claim goes up in smoke when you see the video. The pregnant woman sitting behind Bobert told the Denver Post she asked her to stop vaping, and Bobert refused. Her one-woman show continued, taking flash photos, raising her hands and dancing, often the only one clapping or standing up in the crowd. Bobert occasionally took a break from being disruptive to enjoy the company of her male companion. He briefly had a grasp on the situation before ushers returned and told Bobert she had to leave. The theater's incident report says Bobert pulled the don't-you-know-who-I-am card on the way out, appearing to give theater employees the single-finger salute. <laughs> I love this. I love this whole thing. I mean, she checks off about every box possible, right? Flipping off potential people that could be voters or supporters, so not looking good as a public official. She's getting kind of fondled and hugged by the man, so nice... Um, Nice drunken PDA in a public uh, institution at a theater, standing up, dancing, clapping, vaping around the pregnant lady. I like how she said it was smoke machines from the from the the, the show because I saw the video. I mean, she literally just reaches into her pocket, gl- grabs her um, her vape, and is just like blowing clouds. So I don't know. I think her brain is all clouds. It's all mush. But uh, I I just I just find this story so telling. It, it is kind of depressing in a sense because you have people like Mitt Romney leaving the GOP, deciding to retire after this term, a guy who actually cares about the process, a guy who cares about values, the Constitution, a guy who studies history and how democracies fail. He's going. He has a moral compass, and people like her are still doing well. Now, I hope this Adam Frisch guy that almost beat her in the midterms I hope he runs again because, I mean, she's just a buffoon and a joke, and it's just a shame that she is more of a rock star than the Adam Kinzingers and the Liz Cheneys and the people I actually would support and vote for. But that's where we're at. We're not a serious country. We don't have serious leaders. So I guess it all fits, doesn't it? But anyways, moving out of the United States for the rest of this, um, 
First off, Libya, it's been just death and tragedy. Uh, I guess we could start by saying that there's a storm, Daniel, that caused severe flooding and burst two dams near a place called Derna. And it basically swept through the eastern part of Libya last Sunday night. And it just caused massive, massive flooding. The Economist notes here, this is in an article from today, it notes the death toll in the flooded Libyan city of Derna reached at least 11,300, and that's according to the Red Crescent. 10,000 people are also still missing. Crazy craziness. And it talks about how Derna has already buried like 3,000 of its dead, and that's mainly in mass graves. So a lot of people just going un, uncherished by their family members, etc., now, The Economist does note, and I guess this is, I mean, it's something sort of positive. I don't know if you can really take many positives from this, but the article does write in quotes here, In a rare sign of unity, the country's two squabbling governments have coordinated some of their relief efforts. But then it also says that a UN official said that the country could have avoided most of the casualties if proper services such as emergency warnings had been in place. I mean, I think there's so many factors here. I mean, obviously... I looked at pictures of this city, Derna, infrastructure, much, I mean, much, I guess, like you could say what happened in Morocco last week with the earthquake, infrastructure, buildings, not exactly new, not exactly made of material that is good for floods, storms, earthquakes, all of that. So it's kind of a perfect place to see just massive destruction and death, unfortunately. But we also have to remember that Libya has been, I think it's now in what they call the second civil war. It might even be into the third civil war, but Basically, since the fall of Qaddafi, we have had the Wagner Group, Blackwater, mercenaries left and right fighting with Tur- I mean, Turkish officials, Russian officials, Blackwater, so American mercenaries, different warlords. It's been a shit show in Libya for, for decades now, but yeah, I think it's into the third civil war or the third period of the civil war. And so the country is highly divided. They, they have one of the big, I mean, just to add an, an, another sad part to it. It's one of the places where there's still human slave markets going on. So it's just a, a, an atrocious situation already. So then when you have a massive storm, massive floods, of course the government is not going to be prepared to deal with this. So some people are like, in a rare sign of unity, this is good that the two different factions, the, how the country split during the Civil War, it's good they're working together. I say if they could get over this war and try to fucking solve problems in the country, then maybe all this death could have been prevented. So yeah, it's good they're working together now, but they've also probably led to this being as dangerous as it was. So not not great, and it's just um, it's just a shame to see. You know, we're seeing, in my opinion, I think the opinion of a lot of scientists and people that know way more than me, we are seeing the climate get worse. We are finally seeing this kind of catastrophic era of climate change. And of course, it's hitting places like this, right? And, and, and actually, I mean, places like Hawaii and et cetera, but places like Libya are going to be where we see the worst of it. We saw the floods happen in Pakistan over last summer, floods in India, obviously China's having some issues, a lot of Africa's seen destruction from climate change. It's only going to get worse, and I think it's going to make a lot of political tensions and violence just get worse as well. So really tragic Unfortunately, something that probably could have been prevented, but Libya is just such a broken state that I don't even really have the time in this episode to just get into how broken it is. But it's a really bad situation, and it's, it's really tragic on just so many humanitarian levels. Moving on, though, <laughs> Russia, 
Russia is having kind of an existential crisis in terms of some of the other countries in the region. There's a part of Azerbaijan called Nagorno-Karabakh, and it's in. It was an autonomous oblast zone in from like 1923 to the fall of the Soviet Union, and basically the Soviet Union established this autonomous region, which was home to like 95. You know, close to a hundred percent of ethnically Armenian people, but it was in the Azerbaijani Soviet Socialist Republic. So again, you have one of these countries where the minority is ruling the majority, and it causes a lot of tension, right? And so, what happened was Nagorno-Karabakh's regional government passed a legislation in '88, basically declaring its intention to join Armenia, despite its location within Azerbaijan. And so, basically, since then, we've been seeing fights break out between Armenians and Azerbaijanis in the region, and there had been a long history of ethnic tension, but I would say it got much worse after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and basically Armenia and Azerbaijan achieved statehood, and Nagorno-Karabakh declared independence, and you had just a war erupt then between Armenia and Azerbaijan, led to tens of thousands of casualties, a refugee crisis, and... Then, by 1993, Armenia had gained control of Nagorno-Karabakh and then occupied 20% of Azerbaijan's geographic area. And so, then Russia brokers a ceasefire, and Russia kind of ever since has been somewhat involved geopolitically in the region with a lot of influence in the region. Um, there are still cross-border attacks um, even, I think it was back in September of 2020, more than 7,000 soldiers and civilians were killed. And we still just see a lot of issues. Peace talks are really tough. But the reason I bring this up is because Russia has had a pretty significant influence in that region, especially in Armenia. But <laughs> as Russia has had to, you know, pull troops out of other regions and put them into Ukraine, as the conflict has lasted longer and been more expensive and costly, but with both human lives and money than they were expecting, Russia has not been able to have an influence in Armenia like they used to. And so actually, Armenia was meeting with the United States government, I believe it was last week. And if I was Putin, I would not be happy to see that Armenia could be, in some ways, moving towards the West in some ways. And so I think this is why the Russian government has been more willing to meet with North Korea. And that, that was a long-winded segue into talking about what's been going on between Kim Jong-un and old Vlad Putin. And The Economist writes here, It was like a scene from the Cold War. Kim Jong-un, North Korea's leader, stepped off his luxurious bulletproof train this week, having crossed into Russia's Far East, to be greeted by a military brass band and whisked off to meet Vladimir Putin. Now, guys, I do have to say before we get into my analysis here is that they did have a meal of duck salad and crab dumplings and Russian wine. And yeah, I don't know about duck salad. Probably not for me. As you guys are probably aware, if you know me personally, I'm not a giant salad fan. And I'm also not a duck fan. So yeah, but anyways, the crab dumplings sound fire, though. I, I'm sure... If you're two leaders, two dictators eating crab dumplings together, I would imagine they're pretty, pretty fire. So, yeah, it's kind of making me hungry. I'm making dinner soon, and I'm going, geez, crab dumplings sound good. But anyways, Russian wine, I don't know too much about Russian wine, but anyway, it sounds like they had a, they had a good meal together, and during this meal, 
Kim basically said, that's Kim Jong-un, said that they basically talked about the sacred fight that they shared against Western imperialism. I just love the projection in that, mainly because, again, it's it's Putin who is trying to be the imperialist last time I checked. Like, he's trying to take par- a part of Ukraine that he thinks is his, and also he's trying to influence the, t- the Transnistria region of Moldova. And then there's also his, like, Russia 2030 project to, like, absorb Belarus or annex Belarus back into the Soviet <laughs> sphere of influence or whatever, so... Of course, the United States and the Western countries have had imperialist pasts, but we're getting better, and it looks like Russia's going backwards in that sense. And I know that's very simple, simplified, but it is. And it's just funny, because both of these guys are also just throwbacks, right? Kim, grandson of the tyrant who created North Korea with Stalin's help, and Putin is nostalgic, basically, for Russia's imperialist past. So what a fun guy. But anyways... This alliance, I think, could be bad because it could alter the course of the war in Ukraine, mainly by getting Russia new weapons. It could also escalate a nuclear arms race in Asia, something all of us want to prevent. And it's pretty obvious that they were talking about this because the people involved in the meeting were Russian satellite experts, um, submarine um, engineers as well and people that have information about the Russian missile technology. So it's pretty obvious that they're sharing, they're going to be sharing te- technological secrets with, with Pyongyang in exchange probably for weapons. Even if they're shitty weapons, they can be used to kill Ukrainians. So not good. Not good at all. Anyways, I think The Economist has a great piece on this, and it really brings up some fascinating insights into this or just arguments about why this is not good. It notes here in quotes, North Korea is like an extreme version of what Russia is becoming under Mr. Putin, a militarized society cut off from the West, run by a despot who is heedless of human life, yet despite its poverty and isolation, it suddenly has something that Russia badly needs, more artillery shells. And like I I was reading some interesting interesting articles uh, from the Council on Foreign Relations that was talking about how Basically, Russia is estimated to have fired like 10 million artillery shells over the last year. And obviously, both Ukraine and Russia are running low. Again, one of the conundrums that we see in the West is that democracies are slower to give aid during times of crisis. And to be completely honest, I mean, I guess not slow because we've still given a shit ton of aid to Ukraine. But what I mean is that dictatorships, authoritarian regimes, one-party states... If they want something done, they do it. The positive about being in a democracy, but also in this case, maybe the bummer, is that it takes a while sometimes to convince politicians, because they don't want to piss off their voters, to keep giving aid. And so, you know, Putin can say, we're just going to get more money and, I mean, get more weapons from North Korea. We're going to escalate more. And he can just do it because he controls the state. In the United States, the UK, Germany, France, these other alliances, Poland, it's not as easy. You have to mobilize alliances and coalitions together to do it. And again, it's a positive of democracy, the deliberation, the consensus building. But sometimes when you need more weapons to help a country that is starting to kind of slow down and it's counteroffensive to Russia, it's kind of bad. And so in this case, Russia can probably easily get more artillery shells and other weapons. And Ukraine, it's a little bit slower. And North Korea, you know, has its Soviet-era, Soviet-style um, 
weapons <laughs> and armed forces. I mean, I've seen pictures of Pyongyang, which is considered one of the bigger, more you know, technologically engaged cities in North Korea, and it still looks like it's in the 50s. But anyways, North Korea has millions of shells in storage, you know, primitive industrial brawn to manufacture more, but that works for Russia because it's better than nothing, right? And it gives them the advantage over Ukraine where it's slower to get aid because, like I said, Western consensus building. And I think it should also be noted that the failure rate of shells is high. Apparently, back to the Economist article, it said in one barrage aimed at South Korea in 2010, 20% did not detonate. But again, for Russia, that's better than nothing, right? So it's a it's a tough one, and I, I worry about those shells being left around, of course, which I think I think Ukraine is going to get fucked up for a long time. When, like when you mix in the amount of unexploded cluster munitions that are going to be out there, uh, when you talk about the economic damage that's been done to the country, when you talk about the ecological and environmental destruction that's happened, it's really, really sad to think about. But getting, like, staying focused, because I could go on so many tangents about this, but staying focused on Ukraine. Ukraine has at least achieved parity with Russia, right? Both sides are facing constrained supplies, shortages. Again, this war is more and more looking like a stalemate. I said it. Whether you like it or not, it is looking more that way. But... If Russia were to receive more ammunition, maybe it could pin down Ukrainian forces more effectively. And this could slow their advances and increase attrition. And we are obviously coming into the winter. Obviously, the winter's still kind of far away, but colder months are definitely coming. And this is the argument I always make to people in the United States that say, we need to find a compromise. We need to find a diplomatic solution out of this. And I say there's really not one. That train has sailed. I always say that. I know its ship has sailed, but that, that train has left the station. And Russia is looking at arming up, getting more violent. It's making new alliances. And the West is just going to, I think, have to keep supporting Ukraine here because diplomacy is out the door right now. I'm sorry to say it. As you guys know, I want to work in diplomacy, so obviously I support diplomacy, but there comes a time when you can't just meet with madmen and appease madmen. And Putin is obviously looking to gear up and push Ukrainians back. I just don't see it getting better for a little bit. But also the problem here, too, on the North Korean side is that North Korea clearly wants something in return. So in the 2000s, interestingly enough, Russia was actually one of the countries that pushed international sanctions on North Korea citing its unlawful nuclear weapons program. It was one of the people that signed those international sanctions. But <laughs> the location of today's, or not today, sorry, of this week's meeting between Kim and Putin was, was situated in this place called Vostokny Kosmodrom Spaceport. And it's apparently, according to experts, not a very subtle clue as to what may be coming next. A good article writes here in quotes, Mr. Kim may demand access to Russian missile technology that could improve the range, reliability, and flexibility of North Korea's delivery system for nuclear weapons. He also may be keen to get his hands on Russian satellite and submarine secrets. So this is the interesting thing. So I was reading a piece. I think I got I've read so many pieces on this today, but I think it was in the Council on Foreign Relations again. Might have been The Economist, but I think it was CFR. They were saying that this is actually the moment where, unfortunately, you need like a China involved here. And obviously, China's become more hawkish to the United States. 
We are seeing the Chinese government even look at maybe banning Apple phones for government officials, kind of in retaliation about what we're doing with Huawei and a lot of the West. But a lot of people think that this is where China, if it doesn't want escalation, would need to be able to step in or at least kind of be the somewhat arbitrator, peace broker in this, much like how Turkey has tried to get Putin to calm down on the Black Sea grain blockages and all that stuff. But I think the ultimate outcome here, at least in the short term, is that this could make life much harder for Ukrainian soldiers, but it could really make nuclear security in Asia not so great. And so, I mean, as you guys know, I want to get rid of all nukes. I I really do. But I don't think that's going to be possible. But I also don't want Russia and North Korea collaborating on nukes. And then we also have to remember that Iran is getting buddy-buddied up with Russia as well. So I don't like any of this. It stinks horribly. I can smell it from across the room. And it, it scares the shit out of me in a sense. But then again, I mean, Pakistan has nukes. And I always worry about what would happen if the government was destabilized and radicals took over. But... That's why we need to get rid of nukes. Anyways, moving on, the last thing I do want to talk about today is basically how Latin America has become a playground for Russian spies. And a lot of governments from Brazil to Argentina are not really doing enough about it. But let's start with basically a background. So, I mean, I guess you could say since the war in Ukraine has really escalated. So like over the last 18 months, there's been Russian spies kind of popping up everywhere. It started in Europe, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, The Hague, Slovenia, just to name a few. There's definitely more, trust me. But the interesting thing is that many of these spies that have been unearthed or exposed, whatever you want to say, they have a link to the Americas and more specifically Latin America. And a lot of them either came from there or now there. Now, before we get into the meat of these different examples that I want to talk about, um, I should note that not all Russian intelligence operatives and spies are created equally. The people I'm focusing on are called illegals. Not the term we use illegal for in the United States usually, but basically this is some form of an intelligence officer that works under a false identity, but it's not diplomatic cover of the Russian government, which or the GR, sorry, the GRU, which is Russia's military intelligence service. So these people are not protected by Russia. They are detached, disconnected from Russia, I guess is a better way to put it. So there's no accountability and there's plausible deniability for the Russian government if these people get busted. And so they use the term illegal. There's no diplomatic cover for them. And I should note also, which I'm not going to talk about as much today, but there have been, from Denmark to Sweden to The Hague to the Netherlands to the United States probably, there have been other Russian spies that were under diplomatic cover. And um, the UK has also seen that with Chinese spies as well. It's actually passing laws to say that it's illegal to spy for another country without having the proper paperwork and knowledge put out ahead of time. But that's another subject. But anyways, yeah, so I'm talking about illegals today, mainly. And so apparently these different arrests that we've seen now over the last year or just exposures of these people show that Latin America is remaining, as it was during the Cold War, kind of a springboard playground, whatever you want to call it, for Russian spies. 
who are trying to snoop on the United States and Europe. And before we get into maybe why this is bad and why we need Latin American leaders to do more, I do want to take a little tour through the different spies and how Latin America seems to pop up a lot in there. So Slovenia, one of my favorite countries in the world. Ljubljana, the capital. Great city, by the way. Very, very. If I could find a way to marry someone and live there, I would do it. But anyways, there was a couple, Maria Meyer and Ludwig Gish, who settled in Slovenia's capital, Ljubljana, in 2017, had two kids. Meyer opened an online art gallery, always kind of a red flag, and Gish ran an IT startup. And apparently they told friends that they had a fear of street crime. They were from Argentina and had decided to move to Slovenia. And I mean, I, I, I would understand that going from a city in, you know, more of a, I mean, Argentina is not really dangerous, but going from maybe a more gritty city to living in a mountainous, peaceful Slovenia was a nice change of pace. <laughs> and I, I guess locals thought the couple was nice with their kids. They were involved in the community, blah, blah, blah. But Apparently, there was a shock in early December, so December 2022, when Mayer and Gish were the targets of one of the most secreted and well-coordinated police operations in Slovenia's recent history. The Guardian writes here, Sources in Ljubljana told The Guardian this week that Maria and Ludwig were, in fact, elite Russian spies, known as illegals, which I talked about. The arrest came after Slovenia received a tip-off from a foreign intelligence service. Illegals operate usually with families and no ties to Russia. Fun times, isn't it? Apparently they were like, fuck it. We can go live in Slovenia undercover and spy. And, you know, it sounds pretty good. Sorry, guys. Let's go to Norway. Another Guardian article. Yeah, Guardian article about this. And it writes, a suspected Russian spy who posed as a Brazilian academic before his arrest this week by Norway's domestic security agency, spent years studying at Canadian universities with a focus on Arctic security issues. Huh, weird, weird. It's not like Russia and the West are like trying to like strategically get involved in the Arctic or anything like that. I mean, I've told people I think the next conflict or geopolitical back and forth will happen in the Arctic. But anyways... The man called himself Jose Assis Guia Maria, and he worked as a researcher at the University of Tromsø. And he was arrested on suspicion that he entered Norway under false pretenses. I forget what his name was. I didn't write it down in my notes here, but it turned out he wasn't from Brazil. He was a Russian, but he'd got connections in Brazil and then in Canada, and then here he is. <laughs> the Economist also writes, in January... Gerhard Daniel Campos Widich, an Austrian-Brazilian, Jesus, living in Rio de Janeiro, vanished. Turns out he was a Mr. Scheimrev and married secretly to Irina Scheimrev, another GRU officer, who herself posed as Maria Tassala, a Mexican woman in Athens. Jesus Christ, I mean, I'm going to have to get one of those, you know, string boards out here to start connecting it. We got GRU, a Mexican woman... Well, a Russian pretending to be a Mexican woman living in Athens marries a Russian guy in Brazil pretending to be Brazil. I mean, Jesus Christ. But from my understanding here, it, it kind of seems like Russian spies have just long seen the Americas as a good place to, you know, kind of build up their deep cover. I, I remember reading about someone like Conan Melody. I don't know how it's pronounced. I've only seen it in writing, but 
This person enjoyed a successful espionage career in Britain as someone named Gordon Lonsdale, kind of a Canadian businessman from like 1953 to 61. So this is nothing new, right? And when the United States actually identified a dozen illegals in 2010, again, illegals in the terms of spying, not illegal immigrants or whatever, but when the United States identified a dozen illegals in 2010, one claimed to be an Uruguayan-born Peruvian and four others Canadians. Now, something I learned doing research for this episode was that apparently Canada was the place to go get a passport to then kind of go out through America or throughout Europe. Basically, it was easy to get a fake passport. And there's a guy, Kevin Reel, of the Brunel University in London, who spent much of his career as a counterintelligence analyst for the FBI. He said the country's passports were not only simple to acquire, but also allowed easy travel, obviously, to the United States and Europe. But luckily, luckily, I guess, (laughs) I guess it's lucky, Canada has been kind of shamed into strengthening its passport And since those days, since like 2015, it's actually been more difficult. I wouldn't say impossible, but more difficult to get fake identities. And I think that is partially why we're seeing Russian spies now looking at South America and Central America, right? That real guy again from earlier, he said in quotes, that is probably why we're seeing so many Latin American illegals now. He also says Latin America's higher levels of corruption are also part of the appeal because you can kind of blend in dance in the shadows, right? And I guess you also have to think about how there's a lot of American government officials in Latin America. And these are the people that the Russians probably want to know a lot about, right? There's a guy, Duyane Norman, who was the CIA's chief of operations for Latin America. And he just says in quotes, there's a rich target pool. You also have General Glenn uh, Van Herc, who's the head of North America's command. And, he, and the Economist writes here that he observed, in quotes, last year that Mexico had more GRU members than any other foreign country. It also writes, it is also possible for Russian intelligence officers to operate in Latin America with less scrutiny than in Europe or the United States. And that's the thing I think isn't talked about enough. To me, it just seems like Latin American countries in general don't care as much about helping the U.S., involving, or the West, I would say, in helping Ukraine, I don't think a lot of these countries, much like a lot of Southern Africa, I don't think they see Russia as an existential threat in the same way that the United States and our allies do. Also, we have to remember that like Brazil and the United States, for example, Brazil and Argentina, we don't have serious extradition treaties with the countries. So sometimes they just don't follow up on them. Or if they do, it's pretty milk toast. And I think you have to think about Argentina and Brazil, for example. Both countries, kind of for just practical reasons as well, they don't really want to pick a huge fight with Russia because I was reading that Brazil gets around like a fifth of its fertilizer from Russia. Argentina gets a tenth. Also on the political side, you have to remember that there's a lot of Latin American governments that have leaders that just don't agree that Russia is a geopolitical villain. I think it is. I think it's pretty obvious that Putin is. But you have like even the left-leaning Luis Ignacio Lula de Silva, obviously Brazil's president known as Lula. And he has actually accused Vladimir Zelensky of being as responsible, sorry, as responsible as Putin for the war in Ukraine, which is just bullshit. But 
a lot of these countries, I mean, to be devil's advocate, have just very differently aligned interests. And I think you see that happen. So if you're a spy, it's probably a great place to work. And to be honest, like, I don't see it changing. I mean, it's probably only going to get worse because you had suspected Russian intelligence officers kicked out of embassies in Europe. And they're probably going to turn up in a place that is good for them, which sounds like Latin America right now. So I have no solutions to that problem. I am not a spy expert. But what I do think is it's just fascinating. And it just, again, it seems to me like the Cold War has just never particularly ended. It's just changed and evolved. And what used to be the appeal of this ideological communism in Russia is now just kind of an ideological right-wing movement. It's fascinating to me. But anyways, we'll end that. Have a great rest of your Friday night. As always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios. Alex out.